Now this evening we come to the last three chapters of the book of Daniel. I have tried, as you can see on the board, to put the outline of the whole book of Daniel. It's a little bit uh, close together, it's the only way I can do it, but I thought that if anyone wanted to copy it down, they could do so afterwards. You see the first six chapters divided into six, six-fold division, the last six chapters are divided into four. On the other side of the board, I have put very roughly just a resume of last uh, Thursday's study. This red line here represents the 70 years captivity for Daniel 606-536. And then this is the 490, the 70 times 7 that goes back into history, back to the times of Daniel. And this is the other 70 times 7 that was revealed to him, the vision of the 77s, 490, until Christ. Then I put the vision of the 77s, divided into three phases, 7 times 7, 49. 62 times 7, 44, 1 times 7, 7, 490. And uh, beside it, just roughly what it symbolizes. I remember as far as we can see at present, it's quite clear that it not only has a symbolical meaning, but it was intended, I believe, to have a literal meaning as well. In other words, Scripture says that 490 years from the decree of Cyrus, the Messiah should come. Now, our present chronology, the seed chronology upon which we base nearly everything, that does not seem to be so. But it is by no means proved. And it may well be that in the years, the immediate years that lie ahead, so much research being made into these things, we shall discover that there is some error and it may then throw a good deal of fresh light uh, upon this vision of the 77. But the symbolic meaning of the, four, of the 70 times 7 stands good. That's the great point. And as I have repeatedly said in these studies on the book of Daniel, you have two things. On the one side you have in vision uh, something, the inward character of the thing represented, condensed, symbolized. It's essential character set forth. And then, secondly, and only secondly, you have literal prediction down to detail. And it is, after all, in my estimation, the symbolic meaning which is more important uh, uh, than the actual uh, literal uh, prediction. So much has been, so many have been taken up with the little details and the literalities of it that um, I think we have tended to lose sight of the teaching that is contained uh, within these visions. Well, I leave that there. It may help, you see. You, I, it's a bit of an involved uh, study last week, uh, but there it is in a nutshell, and it may help you a little. Now this evening we come to Daniel chapter 10. <clears throat> 10, 11, and 12. These three chapters, though they are divided into three chapters, are in fact one vision. And I would like to say straight away that uh, we need to keep before us 
the theme of this last vision of Daniel, which is more important than the differing interpretations of the details. Again, as in nearly every part of Daniel, there are a variety of inter interpretations of, of this last vision that was given to Daniel. Uh, many, for, for instance, believe that this vision has been completely fulfilled, uh, that it was a prediction of history up to the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus, and that it has been fulfilled in the overthrow of Jerusalem. They, such folk, refer the, the scriptures about the end and the terrible time and the abomination which makes desolate and so on to um, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Then there are others who, whilst mainly following that, uh, believe uh, in slight differences. They would say that certain verses, for instance, are not a description of such and such a king, but perhaps of another. We may uh, just uh, in passing point that out when we come to it. Then there is another school that feel that this last vision has not in, uh, been fulfilled as yet. Only a little of it has been fulfilled, but the most part of it, the majority of it, remains yet to be fulfilled. And in both uh, sides, uh, pursuing uh, their own interpretation, so often the theme of these chapters is completely lost. And this is the remarkable fact that whether the vision of these chapters, Daniel 10 to 12, has been completely fulfilled or whether it is nearly all to be fulfilled, it does not in any way impair the theme. I think that's a wonderful thing, actually. You see, the theme of these chapters is the sovereignty of God in the conflict over his purpose. The sovereignty of God in the conflict over his purpose. Now, if that purpose, if we wish to see these chapters as speaking of the purpose of God realized in the death of the Lord Jesus, in the coming of the Lord Jesus, and the death of the Lord Jesus, and then in the destruction of Jerusalem, according to God's word, because of their rejection of his Christ. Well, it doesn't impair the theme, the sovereignty of God in the conflict over his purpose. But if we, on the other hand, believe that much of this refers to the days which are still future, to the last great phase of world history, then we can still take courage, not only from what has been so far fulfilled of these predictions, but in the fact that it is revealed to us that God is absolutely sovereign in the conflict which rages over his purpose. That's the point. So I believe uh, that that's a matter, a point that we want to underline uh, this evening as we come to study this last vision. Uh, the theme is the most important thing. 
And in a way, uh, it's one of the few parts of God's word where it really doesn't so much matter uh, what uh, interpretation of the detail that you prefer. The great thing is the theme, which is the setting forth of the sovereignty of God in the conflict over his purpose. Now, this division, uh, this um, vision uh, is divided into three. Um, the first part we discover from verse 1 of chapter 10 uh, until verse 1 of chapter 11. From verse 1 of chapter 10 right through and including the first verse of chapter 11. Then the second part of the vision uh, is from uh, verse 2 of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 11, verse 45, and the last part of the vision is contained in the 13 verses of chapter 12. Three parts to this vision. And the first part I have entitled The Vision of the Conflict Over God's Purpose. I suppose it's uh, one of the most remarkable chapters in Scripture. Um, I don't know if you've read it. Of course, if you haven't read it, a lot of what I say will probably be unintelligible. Uh, but if you have read it, uh, you must, I'm sure, have been struck by the mystery uh, of, this, uh, uh, of these verses. It reveals a dark, mysterious invisible world behind the visible world in which we live. And it does not reveal, and this is the point, it does not reveal an invisible world which is somehow detached, something into which we pass when we die, something that is, uh, has no real bearing uh, upon time upon temporalities. Um, we often think of an invisible world as, uh, as the sort of life to which we pass. Uh, it's a, a long way off. It's distant from this world. It has very little uh, to do with this world. This world is related to it only in a consecutive way. First you have the temporal world, then you have the eternal, invisible, spiritual world, as it were. But this chapter reveals the most startling thing. And the significance of this chapter, once understood, is of tremendous importance. It reveals that behind this visible world, with its nations, with its kingdoms, with its powers and authorities and systems of government and ideologies and so on, behind it all, there is a vast, invisible, spiritual network, which far from being distant from this world is the controlling force in this world. In other words, human beings are just puppets, really, in a tremendous game that is being played out uh, on the stage of time. 
Now, if you read this, I say, of course, if you haven't read this chapter, what I'm saying is will just sound like a fairy tale from Hans Andersen. Uh, but if you've read, as you should have read, uh, these, this chapter, then it will start to make a little bit uh, of sense to you. <coughs> you see, this chapter teaches us that world history is only the outward expression of what goes on in the invisible world behind this visible for instance, in this chapter you get strange things about the Prince of Persia. Who is the Prince of Persia? Oh, the Prince of Persia, Cyrus. The Prince of Persia is Cambyses or one of the other great Persians. No, the Prince of Persia is some invisible angelic being, a fallen angelic being, a satanic being that is in control of the government of Persia, and of which the kings of Persia and the governmental system of Persia is the outward expression. The real authority, the real influence, the real power is the invisible that is behind the outward and temporal. And then you get strange things like uh, uh, Gabriel says that he's been held up. He says, Daniel, I came, I was told to come and answer. The Lord told me to come and answer your prayer. I've got something to tell you, Daniel. I've got a vision uh, to give you. I, I'm come on an errand, as the revised version puts it. I, I'm come on an errand. God has told me to come. But uh, I got held up. And he speaks of this prince of Persia. And then he says, uh, I had to uh, uh, fight with the prince of Persia. And the only way I've got to you, uh, Daniel, is that Michael... Your prince, Michael, who is the arch one of the archangels of God, came to my assistance and took over from me and so relieved me that I've been able to carry out my, my errand. I'm here. And then he said, but very soon the prince of Greece will come. Now this is very interesting because, you see, the vision that was going to be given to Daniel was about the collapse of the Persian Empire and the rise of the Greek. And so, uh, Gabriel says, you see, the, already the Prince of Greece is beginning to stir himself. This vast and uh, invisible uh, angelic world, if you want, behind what is seen, what is temporal, uh, is on the move and is actually dictating the policies and the power of uh, each successive kingdom, its place in history. Um, I think that's very, very important for us to understand. World history is only the outward expression of dark, mysterious, spiritual powers in deadly conflict. Of course, if we know our Bibles, this will make, will make sense. Because again and again, you've got little um, sort of side uh, lines almost in Scripture which just take you so far and then leave you and make you realize that, that life, uh, there's much more to life than what we see.
that behind life, and I'm not just talking about personal lives, I'm talking about life in general, uh, there are tremendous forces in operation. Now then, let's see if, we, if, if this is so. Now let's think of some of the things in the New Testament. What are these principalities and powers? What are these principalities and powers that have been put under the feet of the Lord Jesus? What do they do? Do they just waft around in heaven? Oh, what is this vast network of spiritual beings that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6? Now listen, principalities, powers, world rulers of darkness, of the present darkness, he says. Now listen, world rulers or rulers of the world in its present darkness. Or Paul speaks of four ranks of evil spiritual beings. Principalities, powers, world rulers of the present darkness, hosts of wicked spirits in heavenly places. In another place it speaks again of the principalities and powers and demons being under the feet of the Lord Jesus, being subject to him. In another place, it speaks, of course, of Satan of the, as the prince of this world. He is the prince of the whole world. And you know, when Satan came to the Lord Jesus at the temptation of the Lord Jesus, he said to him, if you will bow to me, if you will worship me, I will give you all the power and the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. And the Lord never said to him, you're a liar. He gave him uh, by simply saying it's not right for him to do it, he never challenged the fact that Satan could give him the glory and the power of all the kingdoms and of the nations of the earth. That's why Satan is called the prince of this world. And he is not, as you know, an omnipresent being. That is, Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He's not like God. He can't be everywhere at once. He is a, a person, a limited spiritual being. Uh, if he passes your way, you know it. Uh, but generally speaking, as Spurgeon once said, none of us have had the privilege uh, of dealing direct with the devil. Uh, otherwise, we might have to get on our knees very more, much more quickly. Most of us are dealing with all the uh, minions uh, of darkness. Um, you see, this chapter is very, very important because a lot of the New Testament makes sense when we begin to understand something of the teaching of this chapter. Daniel's eyes were suddenly opened. You see, Daniel now was at the very end of his life. Within a year or two, he was to pass on to be with the Lord. And now suddenly, this man who'd become one of the greatest and most outstanding statesmen in Scripture, if not the most, was now given a vision that made him realize that this vast Babylonian empire that had given way to this great and majestic Persian empire, which in turn was to give way to a Greek which in turn was to give way to a Roman, which in turn was to give rise to the present civilization that we, are, that we all know, he suddenly discovered that it wasn't 
actually so much to do just with men and women. And it wasn't even just to do in, an in, in a sort of rather vague way with the sovereignty of God. But behind it all, there was this great network, this spiritual network of powers for God and powers against God. On the one side, those powers that we call angels, angels of God, and on the other side, those powers that we call uh, evil, spirits, or satanic beings. Now, some of us, of course, find it very hard to believe all this. But I think after last night in the film that you sure saw, you shouldn't uh, find it so hard to believe in a lot of things that you don't understand or you don't see or hear. Um, there will come a day when we shall find out the amazing and in some ways terrible reality of what we thought was all to do with temporalities and uh, human beings, flesh and blood. Why does Paul again and again say things like this? Our warfare, we war not or strive not against flesh and blood, but against. And then in other places he speaks of things like this. He says, for our warfare is not carnal. That's the same word again. Our warfare is not to do with flesh. See? The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly things, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of satanic strongholds. You see? There is this realm that we know so little about, and I might say a realm that we ought not to inquire into too deeply. Uh, but there is a realm which, though we cannot is the determining factor in world affairs. Oh, perhaps some of you find that very hard uh, to believe. Uh, but it is absolutely so. Uh, it stands on record uh, that uh, this world's history is the expression of the deadly conflict that is going on in the unseen. Deadly conflict. And I believe some of you who have been out east and elsewhere to those countries which have no Christian permeation uh, in the atmosphere, know what we're talking about when you speak about that sense of darkness, sense of ignorance, sense of darkness, which sometimes can be almost felt. It's something which uh, is... It's hard to explain. There is a kind of human wisdom often uh, in those parts of the world. There's certainly a lot of religion as religion, but one gets the sense of a darkness, uh, which is but somehow just not human. There's some other element in the darkness uh, in such parts. I mean, you see, we forget that whatever we might feel about traditional Christianity and all its woes, it has assaulted uh, the very atmosphere. Uh, it has given rise to all kinds of reforms and set back evil uh, in many ways. And there's a lot in what I'm saying 
uh, this evening about these things. Well, I'm, we will have to leave it, but um, I would like you to read this chapter when you get away, and uh, read it, if you can, the American Revised Standard Version, which makes it even more plain than in the other versions, and I think you will begin to realize that all that's going on in the world today is not, uh, is not just flesh and blood, but there is the satanic uh, um, working and energizing behind the scenes, uh, which leads to all kinds of uh, moves and so on. I cannot explain it any other way. The most wonderful thing of all is, of course, what Daniel sees here, that above and over all this terrible scene, which we as God's people might well give up in despair if we were merely to look at it, above and beyond it all is the sovereignty of God. Absolutely sovereign. Oh, yes, uh, perhaps you don't believe that the sovereignty of God can be hindered. Uh, you see, there are a lot of things that we might have to adjust our ideas on if we were to begin to understand Scripture. Here the Lord has told Gabriel to go to Daniel uh, on an errand. Three weeks earlier, he told Gabriel, you get down to Daniel and speak to him. Uh, uh, he's been praying, you saw. He's been speaking to me. Now I want you to go to him and I want you to give him an understanding uh, of the end. But for three weeks, Gabriel was held up. You see, it speaks of a deadly uh, conflict in which the sovereignty of God always comes out on top, but which does not mean that the sovereignty of God is a mechanical, automatic thing, that just sort of an, uh, it's, it can be, but uh, it's amazing, isn't it, that it should be uh, like this. Uh, one of the loveliest things about this chapter uh, uh, 10 is the fact that the first thing, the first person Daniel sees before he has any glimmer of the rest is the Lord Jesus. And I always feel that when we're st talking about s Satan or about those other powers, the safeguard to it all is to see the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful vision uh, is given to Daniel of the Lord Jesus. He sees him in his power, in his glory, in his majesty. And then, then and only then, after he has fainted away with his face down to the earth and is so fearful that twice he has to be spoken to until he is strengthened inwardly and gets up again, and then and only then uh, does he begin to understand uh, something more of what lies behind. Uh, the visible. Now I want to ask one or two things. I do hope it doesn't frighten everyone off from praying. But I, I would like to ask a question. I wonder, did Daniel's prayer set things into greater motion? I wonder. Look at, uh, look at chapter 11 and uh, verse 1. A very strange thing. And I noticed that all the translators in different versions have all had difficulty over this last, this the first verse of 11. They don't know whether to put it with the last part of uh, chapter 10 or whether to make it the introduction to chapter 11. And as for me, that is Gabriel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now he's just been speaking about Michael uh, having the most 
um, terrible battle uh, with the uh, prince uh, of Persia and uh, more latterly of Greece. Uh, Michael, it, it is revealed here, the archangel, had been given charge of God's people. Gabriel, uh, I don't know whether you know much about uh, angels, but Gabriel in scripture is nearly always one who's sent on special missions. For instance, he was the one who spoke to Mary uh, about the Lord Jesus. Gabriel seems to have a special job of coming with, on special errands. Uh, Michael, on the other hand, is nearly always revealed as taking uh, care, uh, administrating for God's own people, looking after them, taking care, taking responsibility uh, for them. I think that angels on the whole are something that we, because of our great reaction against Roman Catholicism, have tended to uh, neglect so that we know very little about angels. Indeed, we rather, as I say, relegate them to Grimm's fairy tales. But nevertheless, uh, even if we do relegate them there, they are beings and they have a very real ministry. For we are told in Hebrews that they're sent forth as ministers to those who are the heirs of, sal of salvation, that is us. So uh, whilst we may not know it, uh, we may have angels. The Lord Jesus said, you remember about little ones, that they, they're angels, but behold the face of God always uh, in heaven. So there may be a lot more in the whole question on subject of angels than we do, we realize. But I'm asking this. Do you think that Daniel's prayer ministry about the return had set into motion um, spiritual forces? Because why is there this little, uh, this strange little reference to Darius the Mede? Do you remember? Anything about Darius the Mede? <coughs> well, you think back and you will remember that Darius the Mede uh, was the one who took over the night that Belshazzar was slain. And it was then that Daniel was engaged in his ministry of prayer three times a day, day, uh, day after day, to get the people back. Daniel chapter 9 shows us exactly uh, what he had seen. He had begun to realize that uh, something was up. And in Daniel chapter 9, the vision of the 77s was given to him after that tremendous example of his prayer ministry at that time. Now it seems to me that uh, Daniel's prayer had uh, uh, complicated matters. Uh, Satan hears our prayers in the same way that God hears our prayers. Or shall we put it this way, satanic intelligence hears our prayers in the same way that God hears our prayers. And there must have been a great mustering of forces so that Michael, the angel, the archangel, with care over God's people, suddenly found that the satanic forces against him were being overwhelmingly reinforced. And he had to to fall back on Gabriel. He was beginning to lose ground before uh, these other uh, satanic beings. Uh, and it is related to Darius the Mede. For Gabriel says that in the first year of Darius, I stood up. So evidently, something was happening somewhere which was beginning to cause consternation in the, in the invisible world. Consternation.
Well, I suggest that it might have been Daniel at prayer, but of one thing I am absolutely certain, I think everyone will agree here, it was certainly that the time for the return was near. The time for the return was near. One year, Darius, as far as we know, only reigned a year, and gave way, it was an interim kingship, as far as we know, which gave way almost immediately to the... uh, to, to Cyrus. And uh, if that is so, then it was but a year, if that, away, that the decree of Cyrus was to be made and the people were to return back. Now, now another little question. I can only ask questions this evening. I'm afraid it's rather in the realm of speculation. It, but there may be a lot of truth in the suggestions I'm making. Um, I wonder, you know, when Daniel seemed almost to have lost everything and was flung into the lion's den. I wonder if that was to do partly with Darius the need. Suddenly, you see, Michael found himself overwhelmed. He was losing ground. Was it that, that, that the satanic world had so mustered its forces, reinforced its forces, that for one moment it looked as if the one man that was God's foothold on earth was going to lose his life before he had fulfilled his function in life. God had kept Daniel alive until he was over 90 years of age. And now at 90, he was facing the lions. You don't usually expect old gentlemen of 90 to go into lion's dens for the sake of the Lord. But here, at that advanced stage, uh, uh, Daniel was facing the lions. I wonder, has that got anything to do with it? Well, we know that Daniel's prayer ministry was involved, and we know, I've suggested to you before, that it was because of that that all the antagonism came out against him to try and destroy and frustrate that prayer ministry. But now, Daniel's beginning to see behind the scenes, I think, and he's beginning to find that there's a lot more to these little things, these incidents that happen in our lives. There's a lot more to them than meets the eye. Behind it, there is this vast world of spiritual intelligences uh, that are fighting out uh, a battle, terrible conflict. Well, certainly the conflict obviously must have heightened. If I know anything, and if you know anything about God's purpose, we always know when something big is on the way or when something's just round the corner by just the sense of conflict that starts and pressure that begins spiritually, we, we can feel it. Uh, well, what must it have been like when one of these greatest crises in the history of God's people was nearing? What a point of crisis it was. Upon it, depended not just a remnant going back to the land, but the whole future of God's purpose was dependent upon that return. The Messiah coming, his redeeming work, all of it was dependent upon that. It was a crisis. And uh, I believe that uh, the satanic kingdom knew it as well. It reveals, anyway, a mysterious invisible world which was powerfully and directly linked with the visible. That's the point. Uh, we'll, we'll have to leave it there but um, for tonight. But the 
point that we must make is this, the days, those days are not over. When Paul wrote to the New Testament Christians and saints, he spoke of these world rulers of darkness. And when a man like Hitler, forgive me referring to him, but he's in the lifetime of all of us here, when a man like Hitler comes to power, it's because there is a there is satanic intelligence behind which has been allowed to come to the fore. When this thing that we call communism has risen to its height, and, and destroyed so many in its grasp. It's because behind it there is a, a network of spiritual intelligences whose whole aim is God. Aim is God and his Christ. Try and somehow frustrate God's purpose and uh, deal a death blow to the uh, destiny. Um, of God's Christ and people. So I want you to uh, mark these things. Now, I, would you just mark one or two other things? Um, would you note that Daniel's prayer occasions such great withstanding that it's the answer's delayed for three weeks? Now, I think this is very encouraging for us all. Look at verse 2. In those days, verse 2 of chapter 10, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three whole weeks. And that's when he... Uh, started to pray. Now look at verse 12. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thy heart to understand and to humble thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for, the wor for thy word's sake. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and uh, so on. Now, what's happened? Well, it's interesting to see that sometimes, if we don't get the answer to our prayer immediately, it may not be, if I may put it this way, the Lord's fault at all. There may be other interests involved. In other words, there are occasions when it's to do with God's purpose in a specific way, when uh, there's such a conflict that we may know nothing about, and the unseen over the answer to our prayer that it can be delayed. Here, there's something delayed. Please note that, won't you? But all of this is only a preface to what is to follow. In chapter 11 and in chapter 12, um, all is built upon what Daniel sees uh, of this invisible world of world rulers of darkness and so on. Now, when we come to the uh, next part of this vision, from verse 2 of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 11, we come to one of the most remarkable parts of Daniel. Now, I warn you straight away that some of you will probably be bored by this, but others um, who know a little bit more about history will be very thrilled. They're not going to remain very long here because um, all that is found in this chapter, you can check up in a history book. But this is my point. I have entitled it An Amazing Prediction of History from Cambyses to Antiochus Epiphanes from 530 BC to 164. That's about 360 years of history predicted uh, in this chapter. Now, this prediction is so 
that many scholars cannot accept it as having been given in the 6th century before Christ. It is so unbelievably accurate. I mean, right down to details of marriages and so on, and alliances and leagues and so on, that, that the majority of scholars, and even some that are known as much more fundamental and sound scholars, uh, really say, would God predict history so accurately? What, uh, what is served by predicting history so accurately? And many scholars, I've said, um, believe that this chapter must have been written after the events uh, described had taken place. It is so accurate that they say it is really ancient, an ancient history book. That's all. <laughs> Um, hence, many, many people do not believe that the book of Daniel at all belongs to Daniel, but was written under the assumed name of Daniel uh, just uh, in the second century before Christ. They cannot believe, you see. They just cannot believe that um, uh, this it could be so. It's so accurate. Um, they believe it's history written up. That's all after the events. Same way that... Churchill, for instance, has written up the Second World War. They say someone uh, in the Maccabean struggles sat down and wrote it out, you see. It all being uh, history, preceding history, he was able to do it. Well, now, let me um, just uh, show you here. I'm not going to read it. It will take far too long. But I'm going to leave it on the table for any of you who are interested. Dr. Scroggy, in his very good work, The Unfolding Drama of uh, Redemption, and in volume two, has bothered to give us something like about seven pages uh, put out, laid out in such a way as it's perfectly easy for us to see first the scripture and then the fulfillment. I'll leave this on this table here. It is, it is as I say, from verse... Um, 2 to verse 45, the most amazing prediction of history. If you want to see it, it's here, right down to detail. Um, on the one side here is the scripture, verse by verse, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. On the other side, the fulfillment and the dates, exactly, uh, as these scriptures were fulfilled. Um, I'll leave that on the table, and anyone who wants to check that up afterwards can do so. But when you read this, perhaps to most of us it's a little bit boring, and very few of us in this room, if any, I think, um, know a lot about Greek uh, history, uh, the history of the Seleucid dynasty and of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Uh, but you, if uh, we did, it would be very much like reading the history of this country, say from Elizabeth to uh, the, Geor the Georges, and to find out that um, someone like Augustine had predicted it absolutely point by point, describing the various monarchs, telling us about alliances and leagues, telling us about murders and plots, and the rise and the fall uh, of the... Um, the uh, 
honour of the different kingdoms, it would just have been as if that had happened. And then afterwards we say, well, how could he have done that? See? So for, the, for, the God, for God's people in those terrible days uh, of the Maccabees, this book of Daniel was the, of the most unbelievable comfort. For here they found described the very events in which they were living. And when that terrible man, Antiochus Epiphanes, rose to the throne uh, of Syria, and when he began his unbelievably cruel uh, rule of the people of God, oh, they, they, they went back, as it were, to the book of Daniel and found their comfort. Why, you see, what does it mean 2,300 days? Did someone work it out and say that means six and a half years? When they went back to this, did they, did they look at these scriptures and take real comfort from them that some, it wasn't going to last forever? And that, that here we found the sovereignty of God in spite of the fact that God's people were going to be broken in a terrible way. The sovereignty of God was going to bring them through. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You see, it wasn't just that God was predicting history to, to sort of dazzle us all uh, with his ability. God is far too great to want to dazzle us with his ability. <laughs> it just, when a person is really great, they don't worry anymore about dazzling people or impressing people. God doesn't do it that. He has given it to the comfort of his people. Now then, if we look at that... We find that the wars and the intrigues of the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid kings are described in these chapters. But it is, however, the career of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, that is dwelt upon at length from verse 21 to verse 45. Now, who is Antiochus Epiphanes? I think I've told you already a little bit about Antiochus. Uh, why did he have this name Epiphanes? Well... Um, you remember when we spoke of the vision of the ram and the goat, we spoke quite a lot about Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did. The way he desecrated the temple, the way he kept pigs, herds of pigs, uh, within the gates of the temple. How he brewed swine's broth and made the uh, Jews, as they came to worship at the temple, drink it on the Sabbath. How he made them take all ivy and worship the god Bacchus on, on the Sabbath and so on. How he slew a great, fat, specially fattened up sow uh, on the altar of the temple and then sprinkled the blood all over the holy vessels. And so it was the abomination, not of desolation, that's an incorrect translation, but the abomination that maketh desolate. This abomination made God's house to be forsaken. All, that's, all the faithful priests left it on the spot. Everyone who was faithful to the Lord wouldn't even go within in the precinct. Just weeds began to grow everywhere and the whole thing went to rack and no one dared to touch it because it, the abomination which maketh desolate had been set up. Actually, the abomination which maketh desolate, we believe, whilst it refers to all these things, was probably to the image of Zeus or Jupiter that was actually set up on the altar in the temple. That was the last and crowning thing 
uh, or insult and desecration of those days. And I'm not, I won't uh, uh, treat you to stories of what happened in those days, but if you want to read the blood-curdling, for those of you who like such things, the blood-curdling accounts of those days, then you must read the Book of the Maccabees and read Josephus and other histories, and then you'll find that things such as people being fried alive and all that kind of thing were literally uh, the uh, event, everyday events of, of those days. That is why, that is why those days have become the great type of tribulation in Scripture. They were so terrible, and the, the cruelties that were carried out on God's people so unbelievably malicious and satanic that it has become the type, Antiochus has become the type of Antichrist and the actual period of suffering, the great type of, the, of tribulation, uh, whether it was later in the destruction of Jerusalem or whether it is the period of tribulation, which I am afraid yet remains uh, for us all uh, in, in the future. It is dis it, this has become the great type of it all, uh, the uh, archetype. Um, now, uh, why it was, why was Antiochus called Epiphanes? Well, Antiochus, I believe he was Antiochus IV, and he took the name Epiphanes, which just means manifestation. Manifestation, you know, Epiphany, manifestation, if you know anything about the Anglican Church. Um, now, he took that name because he was, he, he took the title Theos Epiphanes which means manifestation of God, or, if you want to put it another way, God manifest. That is why he has become a type of Antichrist, because he claimed that he was a manifestation of God. We would now call it an incarnation of God, showing forth of God, in the same way that this word epiphany is linked with the Lord Jesus as the manifestation of the Father. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Why is he dwelt upon at such length? Well, because he has become this terrible type of Antichrist. As I say, if you want to read about it, then you must look in Josephus, Maccabees, and in other history books, and you will find out all you want to know about Antiochus. But don't get away with the, with the idea that he was a very nasty, evil man, because his policies taken uh, in the most general way were most plausible and good. But somehow it was the Jewish people that were the great frustration of his plan to Hellenize the whole of the Middle East. These people would not become Greek. They would not become Greek. And so he, he started on this great plan to eliminate them or force them to become in the same way, uh, we have had it even in our own day, because of the Jewish people, they stand out as a race apart. The hatred against them to either eliminate them or somehow uh, change their whole character. So here it happened. 
Um, some would have us believe that Herod the Great is described from verse 36. I don't, I'm not going to stay with that thought, but all commentators do agree that from verse 36 to 45, there is something more than Antiochus in view. In other words, the predictions from verse 36 to verse 45 um, do not completely fit uh, Antiochus. Some scholars would say they do, but others say that they, they don't feel. The majority would say, no, there is a break here. Uh, and uh, what, what is the meaning of the break? Uh, the older traditional view of the break here in verse, thick, verse 36 to the end was that from Antiochus Epiphanes we go over to Antichrist, who will come. But there are some scholars who believe that from this verse 36 to verse 45, you have the career of Herod the Great, the king who was on the throne of Judea when the Lord Jesus was born and was responsible for the slaughter of the babes in and around Bethlehem. Uh, Morrow, for instance, in his book, if you read it, um, has a... he has uh, traced what does seem to be the most remarkable correspondence between these predictions and Herod the Great. However, there are difficulties, and um, whatever we might feel, whether we feel it all refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, or whether we think that these uh, verses refer to Herod the Great, the point is this, that in both cases, they have become the type of Antiochus. And so, as so often in Scripture, something, someone, is taken as the picture of something even more uh, substantial and great that is coming afterwards. Well, now, what can we say? It's quite clear that Antichrist is typified by these cruel despots. And as I have said again, and again, I think, in these last studies, uh, history does repeat itself, and it's amazing well, that the, the the similarity that there is between the cruel uh, despots uh, of the world, the cruel autocrats uh, of history, ancient and modern. Um, will the career of Antiochus Epiphanes give us the clue to the Antichrist when he appears? That is another suggestion I leave with you. But I would like to point out to you that this book is, we are told, is sealed up till the time of the end. And there's one thing I am quite convinced, and that is that as we move into the end, whether it be many years ahead or a few years ahead, this book will begin to become intelligible in a way that it has never done before. Uh, I don't mean by that that we shall suddenly discover that nothing has been fulfilled in it, but it all remains for the future, but rather that we may well find in what has already been fulfilled a prediction of something yet greater. In other words, uh, should we study the career of Antiochus Epiphanes? Something about the character of the man, the policies of the man, the origins of the man, then his, his nature... Will his history give us uh, a clue to Antichrist? Oh, please go away and read this 11th chapter. You'll get some shock. 
For one thing is very interesting, uh, Antiochus never took the throne rightfully. He took it, actually, he wasn't the legal heir to it. But even more interesting, he took it with a very small body of men. And suddenly he, as it were, just came out of the blue. And the thing went over to him and he became what is called in scripture a contemptible person, a vile person. I think there's a lot in the history of, of Antiochus. It was by flattery and by uh, deception that he won his way. Uh, and, of course, behind him were invisible satanic intelligences that, as it were, forced him up to the top. This man of sin that one day is going to be revealed as we read in the Thessalonian letter, this man of sin, this incarnation of Satan that is t who is to come, how is he going to come? Is it going to be glitteringly? No, it's going to come suddenly, suddenly from somewhere, someone's going to come up and the people will flock to him. will not be able to stop the popular swing toward him. As in all... As they arise at the beginning, it is by the popular acclaim of the multitude, which nothing can shake, until too late, it is discovered that the men no prayer can to have cautioned deliverance of God's people in the end time. Just 13 verses. The tribulation and the deliverance of God's people in the end time. What has been said before now leads us to a description of the suffering of God's people at the end. You look at verse 1. And you look at verse 7. Verse 1. Listen. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Verse 7. Uh, he's, I heard him swear by him who lives forever that it would be a time, two times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be accomplished. Now then, mark you, two things. First of all, there is going to be a time of tribulation at the end, such as there has never been in history, of which all other periods of suffering for God's people and tribulation have been but a pale time. As we have said again and again, at the end of world history, all the elements of the preceding history will be gathered up in one final conclusive form of government uh, and in nature, in character, in every way. And in the same way, all that when we, when we saw uh, those prophecies about the Antichrist, I, I made mention of this fact that all the character of anti-God despots will finally be gathered up into one final conclusive person that we call Antichrist, who is to come. And finally, at the end of world history, all those periods of tribulation and suffering down through the ages of time will be condensed into one final conclusive period. That's one thing. And with it goes this, 
that we are distinctly told that deliverance will not come until God's people are shattered. Now that's a most sober, a most sobering and solemn thought. In other words, God's people will not necessarily compromise. Many will. But there will be a core that will not but they will be shattered. In other words, in this period of tribulation, as far as we can see, according to, to this anyway, it would seem that there will be uh, no possibility of uh, normal gathering or meeting or functioning as the Church of God. The Church of God, as we know it, visibly will have been smashed, just as it has in China. It will have been smashed. It will be in pieces. But it's not the end. For on the one side, you have this period of unbelievable tribulation. But on the other side, at the point of its worst and most severe suffering, will come the deliverance. In other words, Daniel heard the Lord Jesus himself say, swearing by God, that it would be for a time, two times and half a time. And when the shattering of God's people had taken place, it would end. We read here that this time will be the time of resurrection. It will be the time of the end. When it has got to its last final fling, God will step into the scene. That's the point. You see, that's the thing. Poor Daniel was absolutely appalled by what he saw. So appalled that he, he was bewildered and he kept on saying, well, what will be the end of this? What will be the issue? But he wasn't told. All he was told was, Daniel, you mustn't worry about this. This is not for you. You just leave it now. It will be revealed at the end. So I take it from that that at the very end, we've got a lot more revelation to come. We shall have much more understanding. And not only what has been revealed, but there's a possibility the Lord may speak to us quite distinctly and directly in a new way because, because of the terrible nature of the conflict so terrible that it may be that the end will correspond to the beginning and we shall know manifestations uh, very much like the, uh, the early uh, days of the church to encourage and strengthen those uh, that they might stand in the face of such terrible uh, antagonism. I believe this. But at the same time, whilst we may be encouraged as they were in the early church by such things, you must remember that with all the miracles and the signs and the visible uh, evidences of God's being with them, there was the most terrible. There was another side which was terrible. Always there was the possibility of martyrdom. Always there was the possibility of cruel uh, torture and so on. It went hand in hand, and I believe that so often uh, such manifestations of God as those at the beginning uh, are to, to strengthen and encourage us. Well, I think we must take note of this. It's again emphasized that the end of world history will be during the uh, worst persecution uh, of God's own. Uh, would you please also note that the figure three and a half or three and a part uh, comes in. Uh, we had noted this three and a half or three and a part. The word half doesn't necessarily mean a half in our more analytical Western way of looking at it. It means a dividing. 
So it could be uh, anything, really. It does not necessarily an accurate half. Now then, what does this mean? One time, a time, two times, and a part. A dividing of a time, a portion of a time. What does it mean? Well, this, this figure has come up again and again, has it not? Not only a time, two times, and half a time. You know what I said about that when last I spoke to you. One time two times, four times, a seven, complete period. But instead, it's suddenly cut short, and we find God steps in. And here, I want to note, want you to note one of the things, I've got no interpretation of this. I'm just uh, underlining one or two things which may one day be revealed to us in a new way. Will you note that the 1,290 days of tribulation and the 1,335 days both fall within three and a por three years and and a portion of a year or part of a year. Do you understand? They're not four years, in other words. They are roughly three and a half years, three times and a portion or dividing of a time. We, I think, will understand very much more when it comes to it. Uh, these uh, um, figures. <coughs> Some would feel that this has been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, and they point to the fact that it was three and a half years, roughly, uh, that uh, the siege took place, and that another one and a half months later, after the uh, worst part is over, suddenly it ended. And some say, well, this is evidence. But even if it is, I believe it has a future application because there is too much in Daniel chapter 12 that refers to the final end when it talks of resurrection and so on I don't think you can spiritualize that for, as having been uh, uh, fulfilled and when it speaks of Daniel resting in his lot till the end of the days obviously doesn't mean to the coming of the Lord Jesus the first time I feel sure it refers to his coming again uh, at the end of time so so we come to an end of these studies in Daniel. Um, it seems to me that in the end days we shall be given an understanding of this book and its visions that we may not possess at the present. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 12 and then verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10, I think it's suggested in those verses that we shall understand listen but thou O Daniel shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end then verse 8 I heard but I understood not then said I oh my lord what shall be the issue of these things he said go thy way Daniel for the words are shut up and sealed to the time of the end and then many shall purify themselves and so on but they that are wise shall understand so I feel that it's implied, most definitely more than implied, it's stated that there will be an understanding given uh, at the end uh, of these visions uh, and of the meaning uh, of this book. But however terrible uh, the suffering of God's people might be at the end of world history, we must remember this and put over against it this wonderful fact that it will be then, and only then, that their final deliverance will come. Their final deliverance. Not a deliverance, but their final deliverance. 
And at that point, it will be the end of evil. Such thing will have ended. May I suggest that it may well be that at the end of world history, things will become so unbelievingly and overwhelmingly evil. Satan may so reinforce his forces and so muster every ounce of strength in one last final attempt to frustrate everything. And you know the, the appearing of Antichrist, the manifesting of Antichrist, will be uh, the greatest point of satanic power that world history has ever known. Everything's concentrated on it. To try and defer or frustrate the coming of the Lord Jesus. I suggest that it may be because of that that the Lord will cut it short. Uh, everything points uh, to this fact that the end will be very sudden. Of course, Antiochus's end was very sudden. And uh, it all points that, that suddenly the Lord will intervene himself. And that will be it. It will be a miracle. The deliverance of God's people at the end will be a miracle. But by the actual, the, the actual intervention of the Lord personally. Well, there we are. We've finished the book of Daniel. Uh, after all these weeks we've come to an end what's its essential message the essential message of this book is that God is absolutely sovereign it doesn't matter whether it's on the one side antichrist or whether it's to do with the messiah God's Christ it doesn't matter whether it's powerful kingdoms and empires or whether it's to do with God's frail and weak people it doesn't matter whether it is to do with evil or whether it is to do with good. The Most High Ruler. That's the message of Daniel. Everywhere through this book, it's, it's the same. Uh, evil systems and evil men may have their day, but they also have their appointed end. They cannot overlive their end appointed of God by one minute. That's the message of this book of Daniel. Uh, it is that in the end, God realizes everything in his purpose and does everything according to the counsel of his own will, and everything will be on time. Uh, he, he will realize all that he wants, uh, whether it be in the realizing of his purpose, whether it be in the establishing of his Christ, whether it be in the bringing of, the, of, the, of his own into an everlasting kingdom, everything will be accomplished. That's the message of this book. And the wonder of it is this, that God uses even evil, even evil, and evil men and systems to accomplish his own ends. And that's why the book of Daniel is a book that's kept for suffering. Kept, when I say suffering, I don't mean personal suffering, I mean kept for times of national or racial suffering, general suffering. That's why it's a book that's locked up. And when people, when God's people are under the heel of the oppressor, they can get into this book and find and discover the comfort that there is. So there you are. Daniel with its fiery furnaces and lions' dens, its cruel uh, despots and its uh, difficult situations with its description of world history its phases of persecution of God's antagonism to God's purpose in Christ 
it reveals that above and beyond it all, God is absolutely sovereign, and uh, it all of it just becomes the setting for uh, the display of God's ability, ability, not only to effect his purpose, but to keep his own. And what about Daniel personally? Hasn't he a message for us? It's not just simply that it's the book of Daniel with its visions, but Daniel himself has got a message for us. He is a witness, a witness to the sovereignty of God. He is God's, he and those others with him are, is, are God's foothold on earth. It's as if the sovereignty of God had to have a foothold on earth. And that foothold in those days, in days of ruin and exile, was one man and his three companions. And in the end, we don't know what happened to the three companions. We have only Daniel left. He outlived them, probably. But he was God's foothold on earth. And I believe that is why to Daniel is given a title which is given to no other man in Scripture. When the Lord speaks to him, he says, O Daniel, O Daniel, man greatly beloved. That's heaven's estimation of Daniel. A man greatly beloved. Who was he beloved by? Beloved by heaven. Heaven watched Daniel. Heaven knew Daniel as its foothold, the heavenly foothold on earth. In all this mysterious spiritual network of in satanic beings, Daniel and those with him that he represents, the faithful, were God's foothold and the guarantee and earnest that one day all the kings of the earth would come to God and to his Christ. That's why he's called Daniel, O man greatly beloved. I trust that, the, that we too shall be uh, called one day by heaven people greatly beloved. Something that is that draws out a peculiar uh, estimation, esteem uh, from heaven because we have become precious in the sight of heaven as holding this earth for the Lord. Well, we've finished the book of Daniel. May it help us very greatly in days to come.